0: The reading this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, which is page uh, 965 in the Church Bibles. Joseph accepts Jesus as his son. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. This is the word of
1: the Lord. Thank be to God. Keep that um, passage open before you because we're going to be looking at it this morning. I wonder whose church you would prefer to have been celebrating Christmas in in the early years. Matthew's church or Luke's church? In Luke's church, you had two wonderful births. You had mangers, you had shepherds, you had angelic hosts. In Matthew's church, you just had a few words. She gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. End of story. We jump straight, don't we, to chapter two, and we've got the kings there and the Magi, and it's great again, because we're back on familiar territory. But I think this particular passage is one that's often overlooked, and we can lose sight of some of the important truths that are here in this opening. I've visited many art galleries over the years, and many cathedrals but this uh, next picture here is the is the only one I think I've seen physically of a representation of Joseph and the sort of baby Jesus. was quite grown up, doesn't he, in that particular uh, stained glass. This is in, in, in Prague. Um, if you Google pictures of, of Joseph and Jesus, you do get a few more, but the majority seem to be patterned on the same iconography that's here in this stained glass. Yet Joseph holds the key to Jesus being great David's greater son, as we sing in one of our carols. Because we noted last week that the genealogy in chapter 1 has a sort of strange ending. A straightforward reading of a, of a genealogy would have had something like this. Eliezer, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, and Joseph, the father of Jesus. But like me telling a fairy story with a, 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 a crossed ending, you're gonna say you've got it wrong, Brian, there. Because it doesn't, does it? It's Eliezer, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called Messiah. There's a discontinuity in Jesus' line which would in trace back in theory through the father so how can jesus be son of david well matthew reboots the story in verse 18. he begins chapter 1 in this way the genesis of jesus the messiah the son of david the son of abraham and now he restarts the story with this is how the genesis of jesus the messiah came about And then goes on in verse 24 to explain that Joseph took Mary home as his wife and he named the child Jesus. In other words, Joseph adopts Jesus into David's line. I was really struck by that as I read it because I went sort of leaping forward to Romans and Paul talking about us being adopted into God's family. I don't know whether I'm not sure whether there's a link there or not. That may be a future PhD, but we'll see. But that there's something there about even at the start of the fragility of who Jesus is and was. But we jumped ahead. Before that happens, we need to look at a few things about Joseph that this picture, this particular story tells us. And the first thing that we're told here is that Joseph is a righteous man, or as our translation has it, faithful to the law. Now, our first reaction is probably one of disbelief. How can anybody be righteous? How can anybody constantly be doing what is good? And even faithful to the law rings slightly strange here, given what Joseph did, and more importantly, what he didn't do. But I think in his behavior and the way in which he lives, Joseph gives us a new insight to what it means to be a righteous person, what it means to be a righteous disciple. And apologies to those of you who know some of the cultural background, but I want to go back into that because I think it shows a different perilous journey that this couple went on. Luke's fine with that journey to, to, uh, to Bethlehem and we've, we've seen all the films and all the bits about it of you know, crossing rivers and everything else. But there was something even more serious that was going on, which Matthew brings to light here. In that culture, a couple were betrothed. Usually the woman was in her early teens. And then about a year later, after the betrothal ceremony, the marriage would take place. During that year, there'd be no sexual relations between the couple, but legally, it was as if they had already been married. So Mary becoming pregnant and not by Joseph will be seen on the surface, at least as a clear indication of adultery. And adultery under the law, which a righteous man should follow, was at the worst death by stoning at best, or at least divorce and that's where joseph begins to go and that's the situation that poses joseph and mary by the end of verse 19 in the story this morning it could have all gone to pieces at that point and yet god intervenes and we'll see how joseph deals with that see joseph would have been within his legal rights to quietly divorce her but he doesn't he holds fire on that as God meets with him. And he begins to have to change his mind in his thinking. I wonder how you were brought up as a young Christian. Yes, you were taught that salvation was only in Jesus, as, as this passage spells out in spades all the way through. Yes, you were taught to follow Jesus. You were taught and told that you needed to be and follow a holy life. But I wonder whether also something else was done to you. That you were given two lists. This is what Christians do, and this is what Christians don't do. In such an approach, we end up having our discipleship reduced to just a tick box exercise. Saying, well, I've done this, so I'm okay. I've done this, so I'm okay. Whoops, I shouldn't have done that. That's fine as far as it goes, perhaps, but what happens when you meet a Christian who has been given a different set of lists of what Christians do and what Christians don't do? Um, Our youngsters on the team in Uganda last year were horrified when their Ugandan peers said that as part of their discipleship, they've been told that they should not listen to current popular music. Now, it's a real clash of, of what did that mean? How much of what they were told was cultural? How much of it was genuinely what the Bible taught? Going back many years, when I was a student, there was a camp involving Dutch and British Christian uh, uh, Christian students. And the Dutch were horrified that the British drank. And the British were horrified that the Dutch smoked. Cigarettes, I hasten to add at that point. (laughs) Can you see what's going on? That that sort of list that we tend to build up and say, this is what makes me righteous and living a holy life, and and this is what doesn't. But so often those things are cultural and we have to fight our way through them if pastoral ministry teaches us anything and if our own experience shows us anything it is that we can't reduce being a disciple to a simple tick list of what we do and don't do we need to be listening to God we need to grapple with the complexities of the problems that we are faced with and listen to what God has to say to us and then to be obedient And that's precisely what we find Joseph doing in this story, of being attentive to God and then being obedient. Because Joseph is attentive to God's word. Now, I guess that probably not many of us here this morning have been spoken to by an angel. Maybe there'll be a cue coming to tell me that you have after the service. But the question still remains, are we attentive to the ways in which God speaks to us? As Joseph was here so when we spend our our time each day reading the Bible are we willing to be open to God speaking to us and challenging us are we attentive to words which leap out of the page at us or we read of intentions which are there we say "Mm, I need to think about that one sadly the, the NIV translation always misses out one of Matthew's key words right the way through the gospel it's a little word behold And it's there in our translation this morning in verse 20. After he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord came to him. And whenever Matthew uses behold, he's basically saying, pin your ears back. You've got to listen to this. This is important. Listen to what God is saying at this point. And it happens time and again through his gospel. And we need to read our Bibles with that behold attitude where is God going to speak to us through this passage that we're reading? Or when we study and pray together in our small groups, are we open to those behold moments from someone else present? It may just be something they seem to say off the cuff. It may be a picture that somebody has or a word that somebody has spoken. But are we willing to have that behold attitude This is God speaking to me, and I need to take notice here in what I do. And what about our song worship? Do we just let the words and music wash over us, or do we let them speak to us? A few weeks ago, I was um, away from here at a gathering, and we, we sang a hymn which has, I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad. And those words spoke deeply because of what I've been through through the previous few months. I could identify with each of those individual words. And it was almost God saying to me, it's okay, I understand. I'm with you. So a variety of ways in which God speaks to us. And we need to listen for those behold moments of listen to this. Just as Joseph had to listen in what the angel said to him here jesus is attentive to god's word to him and then joseph is obedient to what god has shown him there's a real difference there isn't there we can be attentive and actually notice that there is a speed limit sign there but actually compare that to what's showing up in front of us in the car is there any match how obedient are we when we are attentive to what god is saying we read here that when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel said. The angel said, I want you to take Mary home as his wife. And Matthew records "And Joseph took her home. The angel said, I want you to name the child Jesus. And the end of the passages, and he named him Jesus. He was obedient. But I wonder what that obedience cost Joseph in that culture. Maybe there was disapproval from his family. Maybe it meant facing sniggers and knowing looks from his so-called friends. Maybe some ignored him because of what he did. I wonder what it is that keeps us from doing what the angel of the Lord commanded. I suspect that the most frequent thing is fear of what others might think or say whether in the church or outside it. Now, we have it easy in our own country here, don't we? Because the most thing we're likely to face are people saying things to us. Might go a bit more than that, but on the whole, that's all it is. Now, words hurt, they do. But nonetheless, for some of our brothers and sisters elsewhere in the world, it will be ostracism, imprisonment, maybe even death. Death. I remember talking to a Sikh teenager on one occasion who was asking really deep questions about following Jesus. And they looked me straight in the face and he said, look, you realize that if I do this, I'll get thrown out of my home. Following Jesus, being obedient to him is costly. Are we willing to follow? But there's another lesson to learn from the story here because we find at the end of it, it's not really a story about Joseph at all. It's a story about Jesus. It's all about Jesus, not about us. In Luke's nativity, Joseph has a passive companion role to Mary and then disappears from the narrative after the nativity story. In Matthew's nativity, Joseph has a a, a more direct involvement he takes the lead, particularly when Herod starts to throw his weight around. But again, Joseph disappears by the end of chapter 2. He's implied there at the story when as a teenager, with, Jesus is in Jerusalem with his, um, with his parents, and Jesus goes missing, and they go back and find him and so on. But that's it. The only time he really appears is when others challenge Jesus and say, we know who you are. You're Joseph's son. Get a grip on it. You're going away from who you really are. And I wonder whether there's something else going on here. The the challenge is that the focus of our discipleship is on Jesus. It's not on what we do or don't do, but our focus is actually, are we following him closely? Because actually the the earlier bits of doing the right things will follow from that, if we're following him closely. Joseph is a model disciple. He's righteous, he's attentive, he's obedient. But the words of the angel point to something else. It isn't about you, Joseph. It's all about Jesus. And I wonder whether that's the antidote to our fear of doing the right things, the things that God has asked us to do. If we recognize it's all about Jesus and not about us, Are we willing to take the flag for him? The angel paints the big picture here and in the angel's words, our attention is taken away from Joseph and fixed on Jesus. Jesus is the one promised long ago by the prophet Isaiah, the Virgin will conceive and bear a son. Now originally that was probably appointed to Hezekiah's birth. But certainly by the time of Jesus, those words have become invested with something greater. That this one who was born in that way will be God's special one to come. I wonder how you're getting on with the Advent candle. As you work your way down through the names of the child on that, I wonder if there was any unusual ones that you found so far. But in our passage this morning, we find three of those names. Jesus is Messiah, God's anointed one. The one who was longed for, the one who will bring freedom, the one chosen by God, sent by God, and anointed by God. This is Jesus. It's called Jesus, the Greek form of Joshua, of God who saves. As the angel explains, you are to give him that name because he will save his people from their sins. We've already sung about it in one of our songs this morning of Jesus as saviour and then he's called Emmanuel God with us and again we've alluded to that in what we've sung this morning Messiah God's anointed one the one who will save us Jesus the God with us Emmanuel in that bundle of cells in Mary's womb God made man is being formed. Let me repeat that. In that bundle of cells in Mary's womb, God made man is being formed. Does that grab you? There's something incredible going on in this story. As God himself comes amongst us. As anointed one. As saving one as the present one. And that's the story of Christmas, isn't it? It's a continuation of the story of salvation from Abraham on that Matthew's already been telling us about. And it comes down to this, of a small baby, fragile, vulnerable, in his mother's womb. As Charles Wesley put it in one of his hymns, Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. Are we willing to stand back and see the wonder of that this Christmas? No wonder Joseph takes a bit part in the story when the focus is on Messiah, Jesus, Emmanuel. And what of us? Well, we're called, aren't we, to be disciples, to follow the example of Joseph in our righteousness, in our attentiveness, and in our obedience. But let us never seek to be the ones who are center stage. That place belongs to one person only. Emmanuel, God with us, Savior and Redeemer. Lord, put us in our rightful place this morning. Amen.